Good morning, church. If you will open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the of the heart with the imperishable beauty of gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are certain passages of Scripture that just we love, that we resonate with, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. There are other passages of Scripture that are difficult and, if we are honest, a bit unpleasant to hear or read. Perhaps it's because how often the verses are misinterpreted and misused as a license for others to condone their behaviors or Simply because we're living in 2022, we cannot fathom how to apply the text. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is one of those passages. <laughs> in fact, this week I received two emails from individuals expressing grave concern over what would be said in the pulpit this morning. I assured them I too was right there with them. <laughs> In fact, my wife is not here this morning. <laughs> Our daughter is sick, and she said, you better say something or they're going to think I purposely missed. I said, yes. <laughs> but let's be honest. Fears that once again, this text can open some deep wounds. There's, we're going to talk more on this today as we move through this. And in and let's also state that in this room, there are single adults, there's teens, there's widows, there's divorced individuals who this text doesn't apply because you're not even married. My prayer this morning is that as we seek the Lord to provide clear understanding of this passage, that we will all walk away this morning enriched, encouraged, and exhorted in the powerful word of God. So, we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. Father, this is a, a loaded text. There may be some even sitting in this room that are abused. 
There may be individuals who have used the submission card to make it whatever they want it to be. Weaker vessels, Sarah calling Abraham Lord. And what do you do with these things? And so, Father, we come to you because we know your word is profitable in all things. And, Father, you are the sovereign one. And so, Father, today we ask that you would open our eyes to what you would have. We turn this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've just joined us, we're journeying through the epistle of 1 Peter, this letter that the apostle Peter writes to Jews that are scattered, predominantly Jews that are scattered, Christians throughout modern Turkey. The first section of the letter, all the way up to chapter 2, verse 10, is dealing with our salvation and all the benefits that stem from that. In 2.11, he shifts gears and he says, now, let me tell you how that's applied. So in 2.11, moving forward, he first deals with those that are subject to a government. Then he deals with slaves, and now he comes to wives and husbands here in this text. So let's go to the passage. First Peter 3 is where we are today. And he says, in the same way, wives be subject. Now, before we get to that, I think it's very important that we understand three reasons why Peter is writing. It's so vital as we look at this. Don't, don't miss this. The backdrop, in fact, I will argue this morning, if we understand the Greco-Roman background and we understand the Old Testament reference to Sarah, it's vital. And I hope to turn some things upside down in your thinking in relationship to this passage. There are three reasons why Peter writes. First is didactic. What do I mean? That, that's for teaching purposes. In an ancient society, women were expected to follow the religion of their husbands. Note this. Christianity was not intended, was never intended to be an upheaval of government, slavery, or cultural norms. We've already seen that earlier in this epistle. The Greco-Roman system placed the household under the patriarchal model. The wife had limited inheritance rights, could not speak in the court of law, and along with slaves were expected to worship the same God or gods as the householder. In other words, wives had limited freedoms. Peter's readership comprised of many women who had come to know Christ in a home where their husband is an unbeliever. Now what do you do? Do I embrace Jesus and still go to the temple and worship Artemis? What do I do with these things? And so it's very important for us to understand this as a backdrop to this passage. So there's a didactic purpose. Undoubtedly, there's an apologetic purpose as well because it's providing countercultural advice in a way that upheld the cultural ideals. And, and what is Peter trying to do? He's trying to make it so that Believers can navigate in a society and not tarnish the name of the Lord. In fact, go back to chapter 2. Look at verse 11. This is the two verses that are the springboard into this section. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians, even a spouse. So that though you may now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. That is the arching, overarching principle that's been governing what we've already seen in chapter 2 and now I would argue in chapter 3. 
So, what is the appeal that they that make the gospel more appealing? Note, we're going to see, Peter did not tell the women to stop gathering for worship, to abandon their faith in Christ, or to return to the religious beliefs of the husbands. There's a balance here, and I want you to see that as we move along. And third, which I think is so important, is there is a pastoral purpose for writing. Didactic, apologetic, and pastoral. Sandra Glan writes in 2017 in an article on this passage that she states, Peter's direct address to members of his audience with less social power set apart his document as unique in dignifying the most vulnerable by elevating them. Think about this. Who do we address with government? Never the, the governor. We're addressing the subjects. Masters and slaves, there is not one word in Peter about the masters. It's all about the slaves. Sandra goes on. So he, Peter, kept the form of the code that is, we call this the house code, these rules and regulations. Peter's not the only one. Paul has them as well, right? In a few of his documents, and we'll refer to those later. So Peter keeps this form of the code and its goals, but he used it for new purposes with different addressees, granting honor to the most vulnerable. This passage has often been used to belittle, even abuse women. And I will argue that a proper interpretation is just the opposite. Peter elevates women, and we're going to see that as we go through this section. So bear with me. I know you've already probably, some of you pulled the upholstery off the chair. Just bear with me uh, as we go to the text, all right? So he starts off and he says, wives submit. And that, I mean, that is such a loaded term, is it not? <clears throat> it invokes a whole host of emotions. And I would argue it's probably one of the most poorly understood terms in scripture. It's important to note a few things about submission as we will see in these six verses. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Submission does not entail inferior ontological or spiritual notions. In the New Testament, this term does not imply inferiority or superiority of personhood, intellect, spirituality, but it's designed in the maintenance of divinely willed order. Grudem in his commentary on 1 Peter writes, submission to authority is often consistent with equality importance dignity and honor. I mean, think about it. If there's a problem ontologically, that is who you are in essence between men and women, we got a real problem because Christ submits to the Father and they are ontologically the same. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And Christians who are highly honored, Grudem states, in God's sight are still commended to be subject to unbelieving government, authorities, and masters. So the term never is referring to ontological inferiority. It's simply to discuss function within the home. Submission is not a dictatorship. It's a God-ordained structure for the well-being of his creation. One of the lies, I would argue, of the feminist movement is that they are liberating women. <laughs> True freedom, peace, and hope in this world cannot be found apart from the great and noble teaching of Scripture. The entire question of the world and its destiny is found here. And if we find 
what we're going to see is that Scripture time and time again elevates womanhood. It does not diminish the beauty of his creation. Well, the question is, well, is that relevant today? Because, I mean, that was 2,000 years ago as Peter's writing. I didn't live in that time frame. I didn't live in a Greco-Roman world. I didn't live in northern Turkey. We should observe that the submission is not a specific first century issue. Paul also talks about wives submitting to husbands in Ephesians 5. And it's rooted, Paul makes it very clear, in theology because it's modeled in Christ and the church. But he also roots it, and here's the kicker. This is why it cannot be cultural. He roots it in God's created order. It's pre-fall. The fall didn't mess up the relationship between men and women. Well, it did. But the structure was set pre-fall. Now, before you go any further, let's let's continue, because there's a few other things we need to see here in relationship to submission. Secondly, the wife's submission, as we see here in the text, is voluntary. Twice, Peter urges them to submit. He never commands them to submit. In other words, it's not the responsibility, men, listen very carefully if you're married, to ensure your wives are submissive. In fact, I would argue if you have to remind your wife to submit, you are not leading and loving well. Let me repeat that while I'm on the topic, right? Let me remind you, if you have to tell your wife to submit, then men, you are not leading and loving well. In fact, submission to one's husband becomes easy when the husband is loving his wife as Christ loves the church. And there's the problem, right, men? Loving our wife as Christ loves the church. Early on in our marriage, confession's good for the soul. There's been, there was a couple times I remember I had to walk outside and I walked around the house more than once and reminding myself, I'm to love the, my wife as Christ loves this church. I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And it, it, reminding, this is what I need to be doing. And if that happens, submission is a, a moot point. It, it, it's working together in a relationship. And so, I would argue that submission, as we see here, it's voluntary. We also see that it's a form of worship. Don't miss this. Look what he says in the text. He says, be subject to your own husbands. And by the way, it's not to all men. It's to your own husband. It's individualized. Then, even if some are disobedient to the word, they will be won over, won over, I mean, saved. They will come to know Christ. It's a spirit of worship. The purpose for submission in this passage is for, again, what's the the main goal that Peter's talking about? It's to win them over to the gospel. That's what we saw in chapter 2, verse 11. That's why he's dealing with all of these relationships. In other words, preaching is not through words, but through actions. This doesn't mean, women, you do not share the truths or, or confront sin. Rather, Peter is emphasizing the power of the Spirit in a pure heart, devotion to prayer, and an ongoing study of God's Word. What's it calling for? It's calling for a wife to emulate Christ. And men, you're not off the hook. We'll get to you in a minute. So, unless you get too smug, um, we'll get to you there shortly. By the way, you may wonder, why in the world did he devote six verses to women? 
Well, again, it's fitting with this understanding of the backdrop in which we're writing. So we'll, we'll get to men in a minute. So the reverence we see here in verse 2, when they see your pure and reverent conduct. I've heard some translate this as the reverence or fear of your husband. No, 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 no. There's nowhere in Scripture this word is used in human relationships. This is a fear of God, ladies, that we seek. We speak of fear of him. A wife's relationship with the Lord dictates her relationship with her husband. One commentator rightly states that wives do not submit to satisfy a husband's ego to avoid conflict or even to show how pious she is. Rather, she submits out of trust and love for the Lord. That's great. The implications are huge. A woman's reverence to the Lord implies that her submission to her husband is not absolute. Just as we've seen with the government, just as we've seen with slaves, disobeying moral norms to protection of life, a wife is first accountable to the Lord. Nor can a husband use this command for wives to submit as a license for micromanaging and being abusive. Remember, men, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. I know by now you're wishing you had picked another church to go to this morning, I know. It's convicting. If you are not married and you're sitting here, well, a lot of this doesn't apply to me, I would argue it does. Because you, as you start to date, or if you're dating, these are things you should be looking for. And if you don't see them, or there's red flags going up, run like the wind because it'll only be amplified in a marriage. If they're not walking with the Lord now, walking down the aisle is not going to change that, <laughs> usually. Submission, we see here then, Peter's highlighting, it's a form of worship. It, it, it's what we do, and, and it's voluntary, ladies. And then he says, it's a form, or exemplifies beauty. And we see that in verse three. The adornment, the term is used three times. Now, it's important again to understand the backdrop. In a Greco-Roman world, how you dressed were signs of your social status. It's how you flaunted who you are. There's a little bit of that today, there's no doubt. I mean, the average American spends up to about $313 on cosmetics every month. Some of you are going, well, my wife spends a lot more than that. Yes, uh, but you spend a lot on golf. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, 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 the, the list goes on. Now, now you know why those women can drive around in pink Cadillacs. This stuff's expensive, right? Uh, this, the, and we're not including hair and nail salons and clothing, jewelry and shoes and shoes, right? <laughs> Verses 3 and 4 are echoed in 1 Timothy 2, and where Paul also talks about godly women are to focus on inner beauty. Now, there's a balance here. Careful. Peter's not telling us to not have perms, wear Mary Kay or David Yerman jewelry. Otherwise, part of this regulation wouldn't fit, because in verse 3, that means that women should be putting on clothes. I mean, so there's a balance here in understanding this text. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, we are not of this world, but we must not look as though we came from out of this world. <laughs> Isn't that great? The apostle Paul is reminding that this world is perishing. And we need to be focusing on what is imperishable. 
Already twice in 1 Peter, he said, gold is fleeting. It's gone. I wrote here, whether you're single or married, women, glamour is external and artificial. Inner beauty is eternal and it's real. Glamour is fleeting. Inner beauty is eternal. And again, Peter has already talked about gold. Glamour is ever-changing. Eventually, the birthday suit will need to be ironed. But <laughs> inner beauty is constant. Glamour is expensive. Inner beauty is priceless. Glamour is man-determined. Inner beauty is divinely based. <laughs> the Apostle Peter, again, just to summarize here, is against extravagance and self-centered display. Now, think about the context for the Christian wife, simply to rely on the external, the gaudy, the immodest adornment like the world, this is going to give her unbelieving husband the wrong impression and could frustrate her spiritual desire to see her, her man come to know Christ. So as, and again, understanding this backdrop is, is so important. Well, he talks about the inner beauty, and then he gets to verse 4, but the inner person of the heart the lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit. <laughs> now, I've heard this abused as well. Peter is not saying you can't have an extroverted wife, right? Uh, they're not less godly. We're not dealing with personalities here. It's a virtue. This may rock your world, but Jesus refers to himself as gentle. Remember Matthew 11? Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit. Did Jesus speak out against injustices? Yep. Did he overturn the tables in the temple? Yes. Did he rebuke sinners? Yes. But he's still gentle. And so this is to mark a female, a, a wife's life. She's also to be seen quiet. The term is used in 1 Timothy, and it's this idea of not absolute silence, but it's learning to, to be cautious, to lead a quiet and peaceful life is what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So, a woman is not to be confined to silence, nor is there a need to, for some winsful argument that would lead her husband to conversion. Ultimately, the wife's hope is not in herself, but in the power of the Spirit working. And that's what's seen here. We also see another aspect of submission starting in verse 5. For the same way the holy women, and this is referring to Old Testament matriarchs, hoped in God. We've already seen the focus on hope. And so submission sees the big picture. Why is this behavior so precious to the Lord? Look at chapter 1. Again, the context is key. that We cannot strip these verses out of context. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you're obtaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Schreiner in his commentary says, putting their hope in God informs us that these women of the Old Testament did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were superior to them intellectually or spiritually. They knew better than that. Just ask Sarah. We're going to get to her in a minute. They submitted to their husbands because they were confident that God would reward all those who put 
their trust in him. And so we come to Sarah. And I don't know about you, but I find this a very odd reference nestled here in 1 Peter. I've wrestled with this. And only this past week, in reading a couple articles, did the light bulbs come on. And I hope I can convey it properly. But it, it shares so much as to what's going on here in this passage. Notice in verse 6, Peter says, Like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord or husband. It's just a term of respect. You become her children. Where in Genesis does Sarah refer to Abraham as Lord? Of all places, it's in chapter 18. And it's, um, remember the scene? In fact, let me set the stage for you. God tells Abraham, I surely will return you in due season, and your wife shall have a son. That's the context of that statement that Sarah makes. And God is reiterating the essential role that Sarah, his wife, will play in the divine promise of an heir. In the next verse, Abraham and Sarah, we're told, are old. They're advanced in age. And it says, and it had ceased to be with Sarah as with other women. In other words, the scriptures are underscoring that Sarah cannot have a child. She's post-menopause. There, there is no way. Abraham is old, but Sarah, you, there's no way. And that's why in 1812, we're told in Genesis, Sarah laughed to herself. <laughs> she, you've got to be kidding. There's no way. In the ancient near world, bear with me for a second, because this is so vital to this passage. In the ancient near world, at the time of Abraham, childlessness was described as uniquely a female problem. We know that's not the case today, necessarily. But in that world, it was all the blame shifted to the female. Thus, the status of a childless woman was a devastating one. And Sarah, in fact, when Sarah is introduced in chapter 11 of Genesis, there's no genealogy. And it immediately identifies her as childless. Ugh, she's cursed. Kind of this idea. Honor and social standing were strongly tied to a woman's ability to bear children. Now, that's how it was portrayed. That is not how scripture portrays it, right? There's the beauty of those who God has blessed for whatever reason. But in this situation, in that culture, that's how it was viewed. And Sarah is in that mix, Later in Genesis, Sarah's fidelity to Abraham is accentuated, and it's still within the birth narrative. She's pregnant at this point, and in Genesis 20, Abraham's fidelity to the marriage covenant, not Sarah's, is questioned in their encounter with Abimelech. Do you remember that? Abraham tells a half-truth. This is my sister. Oops. Not Sarah. But Abraham is unfaithful. Now, you say, okay, Hophet, so what? Why, what does this have to do with wives submitting to husbands in the context of 1 Peter? Two things. First of all, wives could relate. Peter's audience, the women could relate to being vulnerable and facing social hurdles. Being a Christian, Christ follower, husbands following Jupiter or Artemis or you, you name the God, how does this reconcile? What do we do with this? Peter's addressing three groups of people already we've seen that are vulnerable in society. 
the readers would have immediately reflected on the significant liability associated with, Ter- with Sarah's childlessness. In fact, what does Peter refer to his audience as? You are sojourners. You're exiled. So was Sarah. So was Abraham. And so the connection is huge. And, and, and they're going to catch that, the, the, the wives. Secondly, 1 Peter's description of Sarah's submission to Abraham, calling him husband, underscores her vitality to the marriage covenant and by extension, her faith in God's pronouncement to bring about an heir through the marriage covenant despite her apparent infidelity. Peter's use of the heiress, the grammatical construction only highlights that this is an ongoing, that she understands that even in the midst of difficulty, I will be faithful to the Lord and where he has placed me. And so, Peter says, women, if you follow in this pattern, you will be Sarah's children. Isaiah 51, listen to this text. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness. You that seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were honed, to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, For he was one that I had called him, but I have blessed him and made him many. The church should not be filled with women who are rebellious or possess an attitude of superiority, but women who are holy and committed to the marriage covenant. Again, if you're dating, this is the type of woman you should be seeking, young men. If you're an unmarried, if you have an unmarried son, and if God should will that he should marry, you should be praying that the Lord would bring a lady into his life that fits Sarah's children. And so he says, in this context, this is an encouragement to you. Just look to Sarah. Now, men, you probably thought you were off the hook. Now we come to you. And this is where it also gets interesting, because I always thought, what a, it's, it's, it's like you shifted gears. And I, the connection with Sarah and Abraham, oh no, it fits very well. Just bear with me. It's huge. What's interesting with what Peter has here is it doesn't resemble the other house codes that you see in other writings of the New Testament. For instance, uh, you think of uh, Colossians 3, husbands, you're to love your wives. I mean, this iconic exhortation or the rich Christological metaphor in Ephesians 5 or Titus 2, the spirit that that the older men are to be temperate, not to be harsh to their wives. And so you see all that. It's missing here to some level. Notice what he says. Peter writes, husbands, in the same way, treat your wives with consideration. This could be translated, treat them according to knowledge. Of course, then the question is, what is the knowledge? What are we talking about? There's two possibilities. One is, we're not referring to religious insight, but a personal insight that knows how to care and love one's wife, as Abraham should have done to Sarah, but did not. I mean, he sells her up the river to Abimelech, and that's not the first time. Men, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. I've said it a hundred times, I'm going to say it again. And the last time I noticed, I think it was, that Christ gave his life for the church. So you die to self. Or this knowledge could be religious insight, and it entails a husband acting in accordance with God's will. I think neither is exclusive of the other. The knowledge is ultimately beneficial to the husband-wife relationship. 
Knowledge of God's purposes and principles for marriage certainly includes a husband knowing his wife's desires, her goals, her strengths, etc. Where do we go, men, for the source of knowledge? Easy. One, God's word. Second, spending time with your wife. If you truly cherish her, I, I, I used to collect ancient coins until I got married and had kids. <laughs> um, you know, and I still pull them out in time every now and then and just look at them and treasure them. All the more your wife. Spending time with her, loving her. Some of you men are getting nudged right now. That's good. So we go back to the text. He says, treat them with consideration, and here we go, as the weaker partner. Nowhere in Scripture is a woman described as weaker in intellect, spirituality, or emotion. The backdrop is key. Bear with me. The Greco-Roman culture, women were vulnerable to physical, sexual, and even social abuse. Uh, women in the Greco-Roman Roman world, on the average, had five children to start and Peter is calling for husbands to honor, notice what he says, we'll get to that in a minute, but to honor, not exploit. Now, the context of Sarah, I think, is vital to this passage. You say, whoa, what do you mean by that, this weaker vessel? Well, there are several connections that Peter makes, and if we had time, we would go through those. But it opens the possibility that what, what Peter's addressing is not just the physical weakness, but more specifically Reproduction. You say, oh, Hoffman, what are you talking about? Bear with me. A sense of reproduction, specifically the inerrant limits of female fertility due to the loss of fertility with age. Again, remember Genesis 11 in context of Sarah. Why do I say that? Because the word vessel usually is used for sexual interaction. It's, it's used for, um, it's laced with this realm. We'll leave it at that. Right, And the more restricted understanding is seen here, and that might appear, well, that's a bit problematic. Certainly, surely not all these wives are childless. However, I wrote that at hand through the Genesis narrative is about childlessness for a specific reason. The relativity short duration of fertility naturally afforded to women. I believe this is where Abraham struggled in properly caring for and understanding his wife. And that's the context. And men, we are not to be like Abraham. In fact, we're told, look what the text says, you're to show them honor. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? Abraham blows it with Abimelech and he has to pay a thousand shekels to Abimelech to restore honor. Wow. Men, we are called to honor our wives and not like Abraham who wasn't faithful and considerate and understanding of Sarah. This honor entails respect and affirmation of one's wife both privately and publicly and placing her in high priority with choices regarding the use of one's resources, time, and money. Husbands should not be harsh. That's a biblical command, Colossians 3. Or fill their marriage relationship with criticism and conflict, but should be positive and affirming. Oh, I expected a few amens from the women in the group. All right, we're trying. You, you say, well, why? Why should I honor my wife? Peter gives you two reasons in the text. Notice what he says. 
First of all, and women, please don't miss this. This is one of the ways Scripture is showing how it elevates womanhood. Show them honor as fellow heirs. In a Greco-Roman world, you can't inherit anything. He's saying, but not in this dimension. They are fellow heirs with us. They are joint heirs. There's no distinction between male and female in this realm of spiritual privileges and eternal importance. And knowing this should affect a husband's thoughts, his interactions, his beliefs. It's interesting, the word honor and grace that we see here are also laced in the story of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 18, when the visitors come, Abraham says, my Lord, if I find grace with you, do not pass by your servant. The encounter concludes with a pronouncement that Sarah would have a son one year later. In other words, grace is extended to Abraham through Sarah. Whereas the grace that consisted of a male heir promised to Abraham was a promise fulfilled through Sarah's equal participation for First Peter, the grace that consists of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ underscores wife's equal participation as it heirs to the eternal life that God has graciously given. There are no second-class seats. None. And so it's easy to miss Sarah's role, isn't it, in the Genesis account? I don't know about you, but I passed, always passed over it. I thought, well, she laughed. That's, that's horrible. One scholar makes a very profound statement about this. He says, Abraham's approach to the promise and one in which he views himself as the main, perhaps essential bearer, it is the often unstated belief that prompts him to relegate Sarah to a secondary role and indeed a role that endangers her. Right? Wow. No wonder in Genesis 21, listen to what the Lord says. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in old age at the time in which God had spoken to him. So just like Sarah and Abraham, Peter is elevating the role of women and saying, men, be very careful. They are to submit, yes, wives are to submit like Sarah did to her husband in the midst of a chaotic world, in the midst of, at times, things not matching up. But in the, this equation, men and women are equal. And so, men, we are to honor our wives because they are joint heirs. But it, he even turns up, Peter turns up the heat in the latter part of verse 7. Notice what he says. In the same way, it, God will hinder your prayers. God afflicted Abimelech's household, and Abraham had to pray to God to intervene, and it was a reminder to Abraham that he needed to trust the Lord. It calls for men to emulate Christ. Failure to love your wife as Christ loves the church is something the Lord takes very seriously. Failure to love your wife will result in failure in communication with your Lord. Ouch. So, what do we do with this? It's pretty powerful. Three things. They're in your notes. Number one, we need to take time to develop and maintain a godly marriage. Now again, I've spoken frequently here most of the time to married couples, but singles, 
Young people, listen up. But the questions I'm going to ask here are posed primarily to married folks. Are you partners or competitors in your marriage? Is your focus in this life more on the external or the internal as a married couple? Are you sensitive to each other's needs, ideas, feelings? Are we taking each other for granted? The only argument a married couple should have is who is going to serve first? I'll serve. No, you serve. No, I'm going to serve. That should be the only argument. (laughs) Are you spending time together in prayer? Are you enriched because of your marriage? Or are you robbing each other of God's blessings? And the bottom line question, are you helping each other become more like Christ? Is your spouse more like Christ because they're married to you? Or are you driving them away? By the way, this is also true, again, for those of you who are dating. Does that guy or gal point you to Christ? If not, move on and move on quick. And tell us, we'll go talk to them. (laughs) The whole point of Paul's instruction, I, I hope you heard this, I've said it a couple times, is that we are to emulate our Savior as a wife, as a husband, as a single adult, we are called to, to know our Savior, to submit to our Savior, and to spend time with Him. That's the, 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 the guide. That's, that's what's governing us. Second, honoring your wife or submitting to your husband is not contingent on whether your spouse respects you. The only thing that can contingent, as we just stated, is on your relationship with the Lord. Now let me state, this passage no way condones husbands to abuse their wives sexually, emotionally, or physically abuse. I hope you heard that. And and thankfully, in a Western society, unlike the time of Sarah or the recipients of 1 Peter, we have options to minister to those that are abused. What does it say? Now this is directed to men. Kent Hughes wrote this, but women, you can apply it, and I love it. He states, marriage is a call to die. And a man who does not die for his wife does not come close to the love to which he is called. Christian marriage vows are the inception of a lifelong practice of death, of giving over not only to all you have, but all you are. And then Hughes says, is this a grim gallows call? No, not at all. It's it's no more grim than dying to self to follow Christ. In fact, those who lovingly die for their wives are those who know the most joy, have the most fulfilling marriages, and experience the most love. Isn't that great? We need men who love their wives as Christ loves the church, and in so doing, submission becomes, I think, a moot point. And we need women who love and submit to their husbands. Again, with an understanding of what we've looked at. And finally, whether we're married or single, we cannot relive the past. We can move forward in our service. There are more books on marriage, (laughs) seminars, blogs, than you can shake a stick at. And yet the divorce rate among evangelicals is at 26%, according to stats in 2022. It's also estimated, not just among evangelicals, but married couples in the United States, one out of four women are abused And I haven't even talked about porn or infidelity. (laughs) The good news is, the Lord forgives. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Also, the good news is there are programs and people who are ready to help. If you do not know where to turn, see me or one of the elders in the church. 
We would be most honored to come alongside you and find the help you need. Remember, church, our lives are to emulate Christ, whether we're married, husband and wife, or single. And as Paul wrote, or as Peter wrote in the introduction to this section, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. You want to know how selfish you are? Get married. If you really want to know how selfish you are, have some children. <laughs> it just goes on and on. We are to die to all of this and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he appears. We need some children of Sarah. We need some men who are unlike Abraham, willing to take a stand to the covenant they made with a wife before an almighty God. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy words. <laughs> and they're convicting words because we are all, well, many of us in this room are sinners saved by grace. And we're married. If we, if we are married, we're, we have a spouse and we all have our warts and our flaws and we are seeking to be more like you and in the process at times things can get ugly and father there may be some folks in this room where the marriage really is on the rocks <clears throat> there's been abuse there's been disrespect there's been a disregard for Christ and the desire to emulate your son and Father, I pray that today would be the beginning steps for healing. There are some in this room that are scarred because they had parents who never demonstrated a godly relationship. And those scars run deep. And Father, I pray for healing. For some in this room, marriage was dissolved perhaps a year ago or years ago because of some of these things. And Father, we, we just pray, Lord, for healing there. For some, you have blessed uh, singlehood, others without children. And in whatever walk we are, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we are to be obedient to where you have placed us. Father, it's our desire to exalt your name. Help us to fulfill the calling, fulfill where you have placed us for your glory. In Jesus' name.